You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. We think that gold miners are perhaps the only industry that goes into a really a true bull market where their revenues are are firm to rising and their expenses are drastically falling. The real promise here is not one of sort of inflation, dual inflation. So everything inflates and then gold miners inflate along with them. It's really of divergence. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for divergence, we're forecasting divergence. And we think that if divergence does happen, that that's an extremely important time to be invested in the gold miners. Thank you for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers, and we are back talking about the markets, gold, investing and navigating in these very unique and perilous times as the Federal Reserve is buying things like ETFs and issuing more debt than our country has seen at this pace, at least if you're a U.S. citizen, I'm speaking from that perspective. And I recently got in contact with and got to know over email an investment manager, and I wanted to bring him on the show today so he could share what he does and give his perspective on gold and investing in these markets. His name is Nell Stem. He's the co-founding principal of Fairview Partners Investment Management, LLC, and he has led the firm's investing and asset management activities for over 10 years. The website is fairview-partners.com, fairview-partners.com. Nels, welcome to Mining Stock Education. And how about you elaborate a little more? What does Fairview Partners do? Yeah. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. So Fairview, as you said, has been an investment manager for around 10 years now. We have generally focused on distressed debt, mostly uh, secured by real estate. So we've operated five funds now, raised and deployed those five funds. Uh, we have resolved two of those funds for returns around 20%. Um, these are all uh, accredited investors that we bring in, and they're a standard sort of private equity style fund. So you invest for, say, two years, and then you're doing resolutions, as we call them, for another two to three years. Um, and you know, so this is buying a mortgage at 70 cents on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar. And, and you know, you could be going for par or you could be going for 90 cents. Um, so we've done that for a while, anything from, you know, bankruptcies to just loans that banks don't really love and they want to get rid of for, you know, more technical reasons. What are your expectations for the real estate market now with, uh, everything that's occurring, do you expect uh, mortgage interest rates to stay low? Do you expect there to be buyers? And I mean, what are we looking at right here? Yeah, you've had, you know, the, the, the reference rate is down quite a bit, right? But the overall availability of capital for a lot of properties, you know, has dried up quite a bit. I mean, we have different borrowers that we deal with that we've been, you know, working to get them to refinance or putting together sales. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of private debt funds that were in the market um, that were sort of syndicating these loans into different structures. And those structures have now dried up. Um, so there's sort of a, a middle part of the market that's that's a little bit missing right now. But generally, people are just sort of on hold. You know, there's just a really, really wide bid-ask spread. Um, you know, maybe maybe gold mining investors would have wished there was a similar one and, and they wouldn't have seen the markdowns that they did in March. But you also you also wouldn't have been able to buy. Right. So, 
it, it's a little bit on hold, um, just waiting to see what happens. I think the the lenders have been quick to offer forbearance, and I think for legitimate reasons, you know. So uh, people have just gone on 60, 90, 120-day forbearance periods for hotels or retail or different things like that. Um, overall, uh, you know, the the urban market got to be very, very expensive over the last few years, and there was a big urbanization theme that I think was, you know, was very much legitimate. I do wonder now with things that are going on with COVID and, uh, you know, people being grouped together like that, if, if that's going to continue. Uh, obviously, places like New York City are going to continue, you know, but are, you know, those were priced for mega growth, right? And now if you if you don't even have growth, let alone, you know, a kind of decline where, where the suburbs around New York City, as an example, are seeing a lot of sales in residential because people are wanting to get out of the city. I saw prices here in Metro Detroit in 2008 and 2009 crash by 80% in some areas. So when you buy a debt deal, what is your threshold? You mentioned you could buy it for 70 cents on the dollar, but I mean, you must have some sort of forecast of how bad it could potentially get, right? If you're because you'd buy at 40 cents on the dollar if you think it's going to lose 50% of the value? Correct. But I think at this point in time, if we looked at something that was, we had to price at 30, 40 cents on the dollar, we probably just wouldn't, we just probably wouldn't price it today, you know? So in some sense, we're waiting a little bit. We made some purchases back in March where I picked up a, a loan for 87 cents that we think is very, very senior. And I don't, I think that would be a backup towards par today, probably. Um, so the market is kind of, you know, rebounded along with the stock market in a sense. I mean, we're actually going out and doing a big loan sale right now um, of some credits that we have. But w overall, not just this situation, but we look at the reason we like this business so much is because you have this kind of debt equity. You know, I buy debt that's really equity, right? When I buy 40 cents, I'm actually buying equity. When I buy at 87 cents, I'm buying debt. So I'm kind of used to giving this talk for the last five or 10 years, because the last five or 10 years, we've focused on, I'd rather buy a loan at 87 than 47, right? And that's why my portfolio is not in a terrible spot today, because I bought stuff that's really more like debt. Um, so a lot of times it just has sponsor problems. I mean, we've had sponsors that are, you know, in prison or in, you know, bankruptcy, all sorts of things like that, where they may have attached themselves to a good asset, but they're just a very difficult situation to deal with. And so, that's been my job and my staff's job to go in and, and deal with these situations. And then I go from 87 to par plus interest within, you know, how quick can I do it? Can I do it in three months, six months, 18 months, something like that? The quicker that I realize my discount, the more of an IRR, internal rate of return that I make, right? So if you get to those cheaper prices, we would want to focus more on the equity. So according to my forecast, which I'm sure we'll get into is, you know, in two years from now, I would rather be buying loans at 40 cents than at 80 cents or 90 cents, right? Because you're saying the equity is cheaper. I want a bigger piece of the equity and to get. So to circle back, I'm not bullish on real estate particularly. What are you bullish on? We connected over to the fact that you're now starting a gold fund. Are you most bullish on gold? And what was the impetus be behind adding a gold fund to your investment portfolio? I mean, we are bullish on our business. I mean, I'm, I'm bullish on real estate, uh, on people, managers like me being able to navigate the real estate waters, right? But as far as just going in and getting like, as they say, beta in you know real estate, uh, I think somebody should be very careful. Um, but 
we think that gold miners are particularly are, are perhaps the only industry that goes into a really a true bull market where their where their revenues are are firm to rising and their expenses are drastically falling and that's kind of partially based upon uh, overcapacity, malinvestment, and, and and effectively for investors, what is overcapacity in a great many industries? You know what we've seen in oil, what we've seen in in other base metals, right? And that's kind of irrespective of the COVID situation. I mean, it. I think this thing has made it super clear what's possible when you have kind of supply demand disruptions. But you know, we come back from uh, that kind of Austrian business cycle theory of manipulation of the interest rate for a great many years, creating overcapacity in capital goods industries, and um, then those industries really, really lacking pricing power. So did you see an opportunity in the gold sector yourself, or were your clients kind of you know, asking you for you to put some investments in the gold sector? This was entirely driven, driven by me. I mean, I think that this is a thesis that I've watched for many years, and it's you know I have to give some uh, respect to Bob Hoy, who you had in last week, who I've watched for very many years, and I do think he's an important voice, and I think one that is distinct from certain people that comment on on, on similar matters, and you know that is of a of a more deflationary situation, of a credit contraction situation, right? Um, and that's when you look at gold, you know, gold is money and money is gold. And I think that, you know, another way that I put it today where, where gold doesn't really function as currency for us, but gold is savings, right? Gold is not an investment. A, a gold mining share is an investment. Gold is savings. And I think that we're entering a period where you're going to want savings. You're going to want cash and that cash you know, people should diversify their savings just like they should diversify their investments. So that could be, you know, cash, you know, literal currency, uh, bullion, short-term treasuries, etc. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Orn Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Orin's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Orin has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Orin trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. And how will you outperform? Your clients themselves, they could buy the GDX or GDXJ. They could buy GLD or physical gold themselves and have it stored. What are you doing to beat or to provide above average returns? So, you know, the majority of our clients, the biggest value add that we're providing for them is to go in, make them aware of this market, get them invested in the market at a time that we think is appropriate, and then allow them to get out of the market again at a time that we also think is appropriate. Because, you know, we don't look at gold mining shares as a sort of permanent investment like you might Apple or Unilever or something like that, right? It's um, it's a very specific time in the marketplace. And so, you know, admittedly, um, 
we we do have strategies that are specific that we think will you know will be able to outperform. Uh, but it, the, the main function is to just get them exposure at a time when the real promise here is not one of sort of inflation, dual inflation. So everything inflates and then gold miners inflate along with them. It's really of divergence. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for divergence or forecasting divergence. And we think that if divergence does happen, that that's an extremely important time to be invested in the gold miners. And what I mean by divergence is that the, you know, the broad market declines significantly because of the credit contraction environment that we have right now, right? And at the same time, you know, you, it's, it's the home stake mining story in the Great Depression. I'm not necessarily forecasting Great Depression, but I am looking at a credit contraction environment where you have home stake mining going up by, um, you know, five times and you have other financial assets significantly underperforming. So you're essentially doing better than the gold mining uh, sector in, in a sense if you exit and then again enter into more conventional financial assets such as the Dow or um, real estate, et cetera. What kind of expected sell-off are you looking for in the general equities and when do you expect that to occur? I mean, our model has sort of been uh, a you know, a Bear Stearns to Lehman type of situation, if you will, right? I mean, that happened in March. You have uh, much worse conditions come the fall. Um, and I think that, you know, this is a big, ugly, nasty bubble in my mind. And, you know, I think a big, ugly, nasty bubble requires a big, ugly bounce that's just going to be obscene. And I think we're in the middle of that big bounce. Um, I think it runs for quite a while. Um, you know, I do, I do think about when corporate earnings come out in mid-August or so, and you're seeing really some atrocious numbers, I would think. I mean, something that's really bad. But I think not just that, but I just think that's just the natural sort of rhythm um, of the situation. And, um, you know, the extent of it is kind of hard to say. But I, I, I kind of live the credit contraction world every day, you know, so it's very, it's very, uh, real to me in the sense of watching watching loans get marked down, you know, and I think I, I think that people don't understand the potential for credit to get written down. Um, when you look at I think when they wrap this whole thing up and, and and we're looking back on it in history, in some ways it might be called a duration bubble. You know, it's it's the Austrian bond at 99 years that, you know, gets issued at 100 and goes to 200 it's these very and, and these very low rates and these very long durations that even if even if the assets are money good, um, the rates are just frankly so low that they, they they can price down low. And so most people don't think of debt as like like we think of real estate, right? We think of real estate like, hey, that's a ten million dollar property and it went to seven million, right? Or you you reference Detroit and even worse outcome. But that whole big structure of debt also has a big value to it. And those values start to be called into question from the fundamentals, which the Fed can't do. I mean, they can't do anything about. Are they going to unbankrupt JCPenney or, you know, whatever it is? What are they going to do about that, right? Um, and then when those loans, they fall out of the primary financial system and they fall to someone like me. And I have very high investment hurdles and high standards and things like that that I want to meet. And so they fall quite far 
Um, and so there's a potential for a lot of debt to fall down to have to be caught by someone like me who is sort of pure equity, you know, and is looking for equity level returns. So what is going to be a real asset that will retain purchasing power in your outlook? We know, obviously, gold, you've mentioned that real estate prices could fall. But what other real assets might do well? I, I, I just really don't see that. You know, I, I don't see that outcome. I, I, I think that if you're looking at you're looking at the contraction of credit instead of the expansion of credit, then you're looking at falling asset prices. You know, we saw credit expanding uh, all the way up and assets sort of going all the way up with them. And I mean, I think even in this, uh, so even in this, like people have, it's this deflation inflation debate, right? That, that constantly goes on. And the way that I've phrased it the last few years is sort of, both the bulls and the bears believe in inflation, which is a little scary if you want to be on that side of things, right? Because uh, markets usually don't work like that, right? The the bulls believe in sort of financial asset inflation and and inflation of office towers in Manhattan and things like that. And the bears believe in, you know, inflation of the milk that I'm going to buy or something. And I don't know that that ends up working. I mean, I don't know why copper is going to go up when we don't have another China to build. Like we already built China. Um, and so what you start to look at is instead assets becoming something of a burden, right? So you're looking at at carry costs, essentially, where you have, you know, let's say a mine, like a copper mine. What if the price goes way down? Well, you have, you know, it, 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 let's say it becomes uneconomic to run it. Well, it goes on care and maintenance, right? But it's still an asset. It's still something that somebody wants to hold for the future. So they're sort of holding that, taking care of it, and it increases the, the need for savings in the economy because we, we, we sort of, we didn't save enough and we used credit instead. And so that leads into my part of my thesis around gold being that, you know, we're just going to need greater savings in the economy. And gold is, is real savings. Um, it's, it's sort of mid to long-term savings is the way that I look at it, right? It's, you know, it's the savings that hopefully I never use, but if I need to, I will, right? And like, if you look back to 1920, right, a hundred years ago, you could save a $20 bill uh, or you could convert that to gold. You know, that gold is now worth uh, $1,700, right? Uh, the, you know, it could buy a good men's suit back then. And today it, you know, can only buy you a, a not so great meal, right? Now, that savings, gold is a superior form of savings in the mid to long term. An investment is something totally different. An investment in Coca-Cola is worth like, you know, millions of dollars and is putting out a dividend, a huge dividend right now still. So that's the power of investing. And so I don't think people should oversave. I don't think they should have too much gold, but I don't think they should undersave. I think they should keep their savings going as they get richer. But I think we're entering an environment where more savings are going to be needed. I mean, a lot of people have commented on this, right? The decline of sort of just-in-time inventory and offshoring and all of this stuff. So that's part of why... Yeah, if I if I could, I'd make one comment about about gold. You know, th there's two sayings around gold. There's 
well, there's more than two, but there's two that stick in my mind, which is, you know, gold is worth a, a good men's suit, right? And that, that speaks to the value of it. You could buy a Roman toga and, and some sandals for an ounce of gold. And in 1920, you could buy, you know, a real nice getup. And today you still can. And, and there's different people have d- disputes around that. But that's, that speaks to the lasting value of savings in gold. And the other one is that gold is the only financial asset which is not someone else's liability. And that's the one that I would focus on today. Everyone focuses on the sort of good men's suit idea of inflation. My focus is on, and and I think about that, I have that in, in my head, but my focus is on that gold is the only financial asset which is not someone else's liability. So that makes the claim that it is a financial asset, which I believe it is, it's highly liquid. Um, it's been, been a huge part of our financial system for a long time and it has no counterparty risk. And so as that credit starts to contract and is called into question, then people go and pursue that asset as something that doesn't have credit risk, but is still highly liquid and is still a financial asset. Nels, I think that point is quite compelling coming from you since you are the counterparty on a lot of these debt deals that if there's any listeners like myself that have relatives with significant assets yet virtually no exposure to gold this would be a good interview to share with them and uh, i'm going to be sharing it with a couple of my relatives that i care about gold is that only uh, that asset that doesn't have that counterparty risk so nels if uh listeners want to learn more about what you do or get in touch with you um how could they do that yeah you can check out our website as you mentioned before that's fairview partners.com my email is on there but it's it's just my first name nels at fairview-partners.com i'd be happy to take an email from anybody and um, i really appreciate you having me on here thank you for listening to mining stock education please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch much success to you as you learn about invest in and profit from mining stocks the mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth you know a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or a hundred thousand dollars and it might discover something worth a couple billion there is no sector that i know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility certainly not the certainty but the possibility of 10 for one returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.